It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the podcast channel. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate you. This week is episode 139. We're talking with Eric Trexler of Stronger by Science. We're going to start this week's podcast off with caffeine, talking about how effective it is, what dose you should be taking if you are a caffeine junkie like me, and how to get it or a what delivery vehicle you should be using. Uh, then we're going to go into a discussion about P-ratios. Now, I know we talked about this with Greg Knuckles, but we're going into the weeds here. So P-ratio is a change in muscle mass as compared to fat mass when gaining or losing weight. We're also going to go into the aminostatic or protein stat uh, theory. So when I say stat, I'm talking about like a thermostat. So in this case, the suggestion that skeletal muscle mass influences food intake to support lean body mass maintenance or restoration after weight loss or during periods of weight gain. Also, we're going to talk about the the lipostatic theory, which uh, again, similar to a thermostat, the fat store size is actually signaled to the brain and influences food intake and how much fat is deposited during periods of weight change. So all that and more on this week's podcast. Let's get into it. Hi, I'm Eric Trexler uh, from Stronger by Science, Director of Education. I'm super excited about this podcast. We have Dr. Trexler obviously on the podcast. Uh, does anybody actually not call you T-Rex? Because that's I just feel like that would be a red flag automatically for somebody. Well, T-Rex is formal. In informal <laughs> settings, people just call me Trex. They, they remove the hyphen. But, <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty much it. You are the apex predator. Uh, so for our audience, who I, I assume there's a, a fair bit of crossover between Stronger by Science and, and, and our listenership, uh, can you just take folks through your academic background so they know why you're on the podcast? Yeah, so I uh, got a master's and a PhD in exercise science. Technically, the PhD is in human movement science, but all throughout my degrees, I did a bunch of research, mostly focused on sport, nutrition, and body composition. Um, and then throughout all that, I was coaching, doing powerlifting, doing bodybuilding, stuff like that. So it, uh, it's interesting. I actually had Greg on uh, the other day, and we were talking about you, all nice things, of course. And he's like, the funny thing about Trexler's background is he was actually like, just in academia and not on the internet as much by, by contrast, like we've been living on the internet, knowing all this silly stuff and you've been, you know, in the trenches actually doing the work. So pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not just that I was removed from the internet. I was removed from all of society and life. I was just buried in the, uh, the basement lab there for about six years. Yeah, doing the actual work that uh, helps us kind of come up with some ideas on, on what to do, uh, practically speaking. So, uh, in addition to your academic background, you, like you alluded to, you've done powerlifting and bodybuilding. What's uh, just give people a brief overview of like all the things you've done in uh, the barbell sports? I mean, not much. Uh, <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish I could say more. Uh, I, I held a USAPL state squat record in Ohio for uh, more than 24 hours. It didn't last very long, but uh, I, I had it. And uh, yeah, I, I am a, a pro natural bodybuilder, but you know, I'm I'm one of those bodybuilders who just comes in very very lean, but isn't very impressive to look at in the off season. Uh, and that's really the extent of it. Uh, I'd like to go on if I could. It yeah right. Well, I mean, I, I suppose you've surpassed me because I look impressive during no season. So that you know, it's like at least you have some time where you're. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually impressive. Uh, and you, you beat me on the, on the state record, like duration. I held a state record for approximately three and a half minutes in the deadlift. And then a, a guy afterwards chipped me and I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm just not, not the best, even in the state level, which is depressing, but, uh, uh, really excited for this one. So if you, again, if you haven't been following, uh, Dr. Trexler's work, he's done a bunch of cool stuff. Um, with respect to caffeine research, P ratio, uh, and weight loss during sport and kind of like what happens next. So we're going to talk about those things and, uh, and go from there. So let's start with caffeine. I think most people who are listening to this are under the impression that caffeine is an ergogenic or performance enhancing substance for, uh, uh performance. Like how much performance benefit are people getting out of caffeine though? Cause I think people just say that flatly and then move on to the next topic. But like, is this a very strong sort of uh, benefit or minimal or what's, what's the deal with that? 
Uh, it's minimal. I mean, I would say take your expectations for creatine and, and pretty much cut them in half. You know, and and creatine, you know, it's held on this pedestal because it's so much better than everything else. But its effects are still, in the long run, you know, modest. Right. You know, it's a dietary supplement. So caffeine, um, especially in longitudinal applications, it, it's certainly not creatine. You know, it, it's kind of that it's firmly in the second tier of supplements where you could say, Yes, you you might get something out of this that is detectable and measurable, but but probably not much to write home about. And that's looking at it in the acute setting. So meta-analyses might find effect sizes of 0.1 to 0.2-ish for most strength and power outcomes. So we're talking about something that falls in the category that's often called trivial. And and that's supposed to thing that be the thing that you're super excited about is this trivial effect, you know, but Um, aside from the terminology, it's there, it's measurable. I think one of the really interesting questions is longitudinally. So if you have creatine before every workout, Mm. I'm sorry, if you have caffeine before every workout, uh, do you actually have some kind of compounding effect? You know, do you have a, a summated benefit from workout to workout to workout where over time repeated caffeine use actually gives you better training adaptations, better gains? And that's shockingly a question that we don't have a great answer to. You would think that we would have settled that about 20 years ago. And in reality, we haven't. (laughs) Um, But there are a couple studies that have actually come out literally within the last like three months. One showed some modest benefits over a four-week bench press program. Uh, The other one is really hard to assess. Uh, COVID had a huge impact on their data collection. And so that the caffeine group is literally six people. And uh, man, I don't feel good about making inferences from that. So uh, yeah, that, that's kind of my rundown of the the short term and the long term with caffeine. Yeah, the idea would be that if caffeine acutely improves performance and then each the performance in each session is higher, then those are compounding effects over time leading to better training adaptations, theoretically. But yeah, as far as I know, and you kind of confirm my bias, we don't have good data showing that. Um, I guess the other interesting thing is the way I view caffeine, like when people say they get a huge, oh man, I notice if I don't have coffee or my pre-workout or whatever, my workouts are trash. I think a lot of this obviously is between the ears, you know, as far as their expectations of like, how am I going to feel? And then also the arousal level, like at the beginning of a training session where usually the highest priority exercises are. So like during our our seminar, we talk about the Yerkes-Dodson law of like arousal, right? Where it's like, if you're not aroused enough, your peak performance is compromised. And if you're too hyped up, performance goes down again, it's like a bell curve. You want to get that sweet spot. And so people with caffeine to take caffeine or other, you know, stimulants prior to a workout, probably at the beginning of their workout, because the workout itself hasn't like generated enough arousal on its own, maybe get to that sweet spot sooner. And they feel, yeah, I'm ready to go on my heavy squats or deadlifts or bench, whatever. Um, but again, to the effect that that actually like improves long-term outcomes, mm, shoulder shrug emoji. I, I want it to be yeah. the case because I love caffeine. Like if you, I, uh, I remember during residency, I was like, what are all the legal stimulants that I can use to like keep myself awake? And I, I actually, you know, I thought there'd be better data even on like cognitive performance, but even that is like still not the dust hasn't settled yet. So if we look yeah. at, if we look at the, the, the creatine sort of trajectory, as far as how many thousands of studies have to come out before we feel really good about knowing everything there is to know. Uh, about creatine, it'll probably take another 20 years for <laughs> caffeine to, to be elucidated. Yeah, it, it probably will. But but like you said, I think in many cases, it's the, the subjective aspect mm-hmm. that, that we really enjoy with our utilization. And, and so at the consumer level, outside of the research papers and into the trenches, you know, there are those people who, you know, whether it's subjective, whether it's truly physiologically impacting performance, there, there's in many cases, some benefit to be obtained there. And, and there are also people who really dislike that arousal. You know, it, 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 mm-hmm. it, they, they sense that as being jittery, as being overstimulated, overhyped. And in that case, you know, the, the potential longitudinal benefit is so limited. Its ceiling is so low mm-hmm. that if you're noticing that you dislike the subjective experience, I'd say just, just let it go. You know, it's, it's not yeah. for you. Yeah, don't go chasing that waterfall to quote the, the philosophy the, the DLC. I think that's the first time I worked that into a podcast. Um, nice. 
Yeah, let's uh, just to wrap this in a bow, talk about like dosing, how to get caffeine and maybe like the frequency. You know, when you look at the literature on caffeine, to the best of my knowledge, there's basically two ranges that commonly crop up that three to six milligrams of caffeine per kilogram body weight or even up three to nine. That's like a threefold difference. You know, for me, that's somewhere between like 300 and 900. And I can tell you with certainty that if I took 900 milligrams of caffeine at one time, oh boy, all sorts of bad things are going to happen to me. I probably wouldn't leave the bathroom to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want anything to do with nine milligrams per kilogram. Uh, when you, and, and that's from someone who I, I love caffeine. Sure. When you, when you look at the literature, when you start getting to doses above six, you get into the seven, the eight, the nine range milligrams per kilogram. It is much more common to see adverse events reported. Uh, participants who are just like, hey, would you even believe that I feel very uncomfortable now? Thanks for giving me nine milligrams per kilogram. Um, so I, I usually I usually report the uh, the ergogenic range as being three to six. But even within that range, it's not necessarily... Uh, I don't know if it's safe to say that three is equivalent to six in, in terms of ergogenic potential, just because you, you can find a lot of studies where they give three milligrams per kilogram where caffeine kind of falls flat. Um, I, I think it's a little bit more reliable to see ergogenic effects up in the five to six milligram per kilogram range. So as a consumer, it, it's easy to say, okay, well, I'll start with three and see how it goes. As a researcher, and you know, you get into this, this spot where you're planning a study, you're going to put a lot of money into it, a lot of time into it. There's a lot on the line. It it, it, a lot of times you see them saying, I'm going to go five or six because I don't want to whiff on this study by aiming a little bit too low. So, so that, that's some helpful nuance when it comes to, to dosing. Yeah. Uh, just for the listeners at home, a cup of coffee, again, depending on how it's brewed and the uh, volume you're taking in, but standard dosing, they uh, you see in the uh, report is like 81 milligrams. So for most folks, unless you're very, very small, you're not even getting close with one or two cups of coffee. We're talking three cups, four cups, more cups, just depends. Um, and interestingly, like, because then the next question people have is, well, what about the dose for health? What's the healthy dose? And like, there's a 2012 FDA like letter that's like, yeah, 400 milligrams is probably safe for most folks. And that, but they don't cite any like toxicology <laughs> studies or like anything like that. Uh, to be fair, most people tolerate it well, unless they have some metabolic issue with it and then they get the side effects. Uh, as far as like how people should be getting this, there are multiple different routes of administration. Uh, you can get IV caffeine in the hospital, which sounded like an awesome sort of, you know, thing for me. I was like, oh, I can just walk around with a, an IV pole and just have an infusion. Yeah. But, um, the most common ways people would probably take this is either coffee, an energy drink pre-workout, maybe even a gum, but they all have different like times to peak, uh, based on the temperature, how fast people can consume them, et cetera. What do you, do you have like a stock recommendation for how people should get this? Uh, I, I do have a stock recommendation, which is basically if you're getting it from food or beverage, then, you know, an hour before exercise is a safe bet. There is some, you know, th there are some subtle differences in the exact rate of appearance, like you mentioned, the exact time to, you know, max blood concentration and stuff like that. But the really reassuring thing with caffeine is that those differences are pretty subtle. Um, and we we aren't aiming for a really small target. You know, it's not like this thing where we have to time it up perfectly. As long as we give that caffeine plenty of time to to get into circulation, we're going to be able to enjoy that ergogenic effect for an extended period of time. You know, we're talking about something that gets into the blood, has a half-life of, you know, five, six, sometimes estimated at even eight hours. And so uh, we, we don't have to trick ourselves into thinking we're aiming for this tight window. You know, we just got to get it in our system. An hour before exercise should be fine. If you use gum, which is not super common, but, you know, it's out there, then I'd say you can probably cut that down to 30 or 45 minutes just because uh, th there is a faster rate of appearance uh, when chewing a gum versus consuming a beverage. Right. And we still don't have caffeine suppositories, but uh, look for new products on the Barbell Medicine website. <laughs> no. Yeah, there you go. Just, just joking. Uh, during powerlifting meets, usually I'll, I'll have people, if they're using pre-workout or some other sort of liquid substance, I have them do that prior to the, starting their warmups. As long as they're timing their warmups correctly, because 
some people will. Yeah, I did my last warm up 20 minutes before my first attempt. It's like, that's oh, probably not ideal there from, <laughs> from a performance standpoint. But um, yeah, the the final question on caffeine would be, when is it time to re-up? So like that, we're not, again, aiming for this narrow window, but like if we have a protracted window or you're doing a powerlifting meet, it's three and a half hours, four hours long. Would you recommend like a re, like redosing at some point? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know if I have a really good evidence-based answer for that. It might be out there, but I haven't come across it because I usually focus on research with single-dose applications. My intuitive hunch would be maybe we've got like a two or three hour window there where, where we can really utilize that peak effect. So maybe instead of saying, oh, I'm going to go six milligrams per kilogram, you know, single time for a really prolonged all day thing, maybe you break that up and make your daily dose equivalent to that, but cut it down into, you know, maybe two or three doses that are spaced accordingly. So one thing to keep in mind, though, like I said, we're talking about five, six, maybe even eight hours of a half-life, depending on, you know, variation from person to person. The uh, the rate of caffeine metabolism uh, varies quite a bit from person to person. So keep in mind that, you know, if you are going to take those multiple doses, you're not starting from zero. You still have a ton of caffeine in your blood. <laughs> so So don't, like, take the full dose and then another full dose, another full dose, and act like you know, out of sight, out of mind with those previous doses. Yep. Yep, exactly. Particularly if you train or you have an event somewhat close to bedtime and you care about sleep quality, sleep architecture, et cetera. Which you should, by idea. the way, you know, like yeah, correct. we yes. started with the question, you know, how much does caffeine matter? A hell of a lot less than sleep. That, that's for sure. hundred percent. hundred percent. Very good. All right. So for more, we'll link uh, Eric's paper uh, his latest paper on caffeine in the description. So you can read through all that. I think it's open source too. So people can get up to date on that. Um, okay. Moving on P ratio. This has got the internet flutter. There's, I mean, I think people probably don't need to go too much into the weeds on this, but they like it for whatever reason. Hence the rebuttal to the rebuttal to the rebuttal. You and, uh, Menno Hensel, uh, Henselman's have been going back and forth on this. Uh, can you give people an overview of what are we talking about when we're talking about P ratio and then where do you kind of, where on the fence do you, do you sit on this with respect to how we should, uh, change our management based on the, the evidence? Yeah. I mean, much like you said, I, I was shocked that anyone particularly cared about this article. Like I, I thought it was good to get out, but I didn't expect a lot of, you know, follow up with it. But so the P ratio is basically the proportion of weight change that is attributable to lean mass. And what that basically means is if you gain three pounds, how much of it is lean mass, how much of it is fat mass. If all three pounds of it is lean mass, then you have a really high P ratio. If it's like virtually all fat, then you have a very low P ratio. And that corresponds to weight gain and weight loss. So theoretically, I'm assuming lifters like to have a lot of muscle. So a high P ratio during weight gain is fantastic. A high P ratio during weight loss is not fantastic because you're losing a bunch of lean mass. So, so that's the general concept. And it got really popular to suggest that your P ratio will become impaired if your body fat level gets too high. And so the, the implication there would be if you let your body fat get high, it will become increasingly hard to make lean gains. You know, if, if you're trying to gain uh, five pounds and you have a high body fat, then a smaller proportion of that is going to be lean mass based on this theory. And, you know, at face value, I, that didn't sit well with me because I've been at high body fats and low body fats and man, I made some gains at high body fats. Um, and then you look around and you say, well, if hypertrophy is the goal, who's winning here? <laughs> you know, who's got an absolute, am I allowed to cuss? Sure, yeah. Who has a shitload of lean mass? Right. And it, it's it's usually people with plenty of body fat, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so at face value, it didn't make a lot of sense. And then I was like, okay, well, let's look at some of the, uh, the formative literature, the, the foundational stuff here. And it was overfeeding studies in people who are not lifting weights. And we're trying to use this to make inferences about hypertrophy, which seems like a huge issue. And what you find is there's this really steep curve where at super low body fats, people have these high P ratios during weight gain. 
And then it really drops off when you get to more moderate and high body fat levels. And then it kind of flattens out. And so it turns out a lot of this literature was just showing um, quite literally that if you do overfeeding in people with anorexia nervosa, they tend to regain plenty of lean mass. And that's because they've lost a great deal of lean mass. I mean, there is a, a natural inherent stimulus for the accretion of lean tissue that in many cases, there's a substantial loss of organ mass, let alone, you know, appendicular uh, muscle tissue and things like that. And then, of course, if, if you've got somebody who's, you know, 40% body fat and you put them on a bulking diet and you insist that they don't lift, I, I can't imagine why you would expect that they're going to gain a high proportion of lean mass with no stimulus there. Uh, so that was kind of the starting point. And then, you know, Greg really likes numbers and really likes making me work hard. So we did like our own little meta analysis where we we looked at all of these, all, all the studies we could find that did hypertrophy focused training programs and actually published all of their individual level data. So the raw data was available publicly. So we took all the data from seven studies, like 161 people or something like that. And we did a million different analyses to figure out people who started these interventions with high body fat, did they struggle to achieve hypertrophy or make really lean gains? And our results indicated that absolutely not. They, they, they had similar amounts of hypertrophy, the people with higher body fat, and they just tended to lose a little bit of fat uh, along the way. So they actually had better P ratios uh, th than leaner people. Um, which intuitively made sense to us. You know, we, we, we think, you know, if you combine a person's genetic potential, uh, you know, their, their genetic propensity for hypertrophy with, uh, you know, a really good training program and, you know, the dietary requirements needed to facilitate hypertrophy, that should explain a lot of what kind of hypertrophy we're going to observe. I don't think you really need to say, no, hypertrophy is only a lean person's game. And so, we did, we did a, the main analysis and then there was rebuttals and then we did like a million other analyses to kind of uh, say, okay, you're concerned about this, but we can show that's not a big deal. And it really just kind of picked up from there. But, but uh, you know, we feel like we put together a really strong um, evidentiary basis for the idea that, uh, you know, the, the, the classic idea that high body fat's a bad idea because it makes hypertrophy harder or it impairs your P ratio we think for lifters who are otherwise healthy, that can pretty much be put to rest. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Doug Dale, I think was like the original author on the P ratio. And I don't think that he meant for it to be applied to lifters, <laughs> lifting weights, eating a bunch of protein. And then, right. I, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, I, I think what you're, what we're seeing with the, like you said, the people with anorexia or other like recent loss of lots of lean mass who then go on to overfeeding. Um, it's like this aminostatic sort of mechanism, like this propensity to regain lean body mass. And then by the same token, if you have people who are steady state at a with excess adiposity and you put them on a calorie surplus without stimulus to like make new muscle mass, like, well, yeah, they're going to gain a bunch more fat mass because they already have a lot of lean muscle mass. Um, so, but yeah, lifting changes the game. And then from, it sounds like to me what you're saying, if there, if we could break this into like modifiable and non-modifiable factors, well, your genetics are non-modifiable, but that's going to be sort of the driving force behind like, what is your, you know, P ratio if given optimal nutrition, so enough protein, calories, whatever, and then training, you know, stimulus, which would be the non or the modifiable factors. So to the extent that you can modify things, it'd be protein intake and training and non-modifiable, your parents, you can't go back in time. Well, you know. SNP, you know, genetic modification is probably on the forefront, maybe not in our lifetime, yeah. but it's coming. Um, anything else you think I'm missing with respect to like factors we could play with here? Well, there, there might be some potential for modification via weight loss, but I actually think it's the exact opposite of how a lot of people are applying it. So a lot of people are saying, oh, you got to get to a lean body fat level so that you can have this nice P ratio. So let's do a, an aggressive cut before we bulk up. And when we look at the longitudinal weight change literature and look at weight regain studies, it actually looks like we have the ability to potentially make our P ratio worse in weight regain. So uh, it, it's not all, all the time. And this is coming from literature in people who are not lifting. So huge caveat, huge grain of salt. But if I'm reaching for one additional modifiable thing that might come into play, it's that if we do really extreme weight loss practices and lose a ton of weight really quickly, 
uh, or go into an extremely large deficit, there are some instances where we see people preferentially regaining fat during weight regain. And so uh, that is one possible area where we might see that people actually mess up their P ratio a little bit, at least in, in the short term, temporary type thing. Yeah, that's kind of like the counter to that amino static mechanism. Whereas if you lost a bunch of lean body mass, then you overfeed, you're going to regain a bunch of lean body mass. But if you lose a bunch of fat mass, there's this adipostatic mechanism sort of thought where, yeah, you lost a bunch of fat mass. And so you're going to preferentially restore those fat, that fat mass to kind of get you back to equilibrium, which actually dovetails nicely into this next topic. Um, you did a review on kind of like people losing weight for different sports. I think you mostly focused on bodybuilders, but this I think is also applicable to weight class sports where people cut weight to make a certain weight class happens all the time. And I don't know that people involved in sport actually give this too much thought. Uh, I mean, in bodybuilding, you're trying to preserve as much lean body mass as possible. And in powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting, you're trying to make a certain weight class, but nobody's really thinking about the, what are the long-term effects or even really the short to medium term effects? Like, yeah, I lost this weight, but what's going to be my trajectory after this when I return to maintenance or even a surplus. So did you originally design the study? Are you like one of the, like you came up with the study design or you were just on board with the review or how'd that go? Yeah. Yeah. We've done a couple like that. We we did one that was kind of a pilot study with a small cohort. We did another one that was more of a case series where we just kind of looked at some individuals. Uh, But, uh, but yeah, in both of those, I was a, pretty heavily involved. One of them, it was like my pet project, my baby. And then the other one, I, I was kind of just assisting with uh, the interpretation and, and the analysis. But yeah, it's something that's fascinated me because uh, with, with bodybuilding, everybody has their eyes focused on the finish line, but it's not actually the finish line. <laughs> you know, everybody's like, okay, after show day, no one really thinks what's going to happen then. And when you're dealing with extreme changes in body composition, there's usually some extreme changes in that post-show period of getting back to something that's more sustainable. But like you said, it, it applies to, uh, to, to strength athletes of, of all types. You know, anyone who's really trying to manipulate body weight uh, for, for a, a very specific end date, we, we always want to be thinking about what's going to happen after the fact there as we kind of revert back to normal. Yeah. It's not so much a finish line as it is like a checkpoint. Like this is just one checkpoint in the race. And so, uh, trying to get to a certain level of conditioning or certain body weight. Yeah. I understand the need to do that from a competitive standpoint, but then also like what happens next. I actually think a lot of people will sort of try and await and try and they're trying to explain to themselves, like what has happened, like retrospectively, like rationalize, like, yeah, well I cut for this show. I got really lean. And then when I went back to maintenance, I gained all this fat, I'm metabolically damaged or something like that. And that gets thrown out all over the place. And it's like, well, if you just listen to the last 10 minutes of this, you would say, well, no, I just lost a bunch of fat mass. And now is preferentially restoring that fat mass. That's what happened. But there seems to be some maybe medium term, maybe sequelae to that, that like sets yourself, sets you up for a worse experience going forward. Um, can you take listeners kind of through what you, what you found in this case series in the, in the original study? Yeah. I mean, so one of the biggest things we found uh, when we look at the case series, when we look at that, uh, that small, small cohort study is, you know, when people show up for competition, in many cases, their, their resting metabolic rate is a little lower than we would otherwise expect because they're in a pretty big caloric deficit and and they are uh, quite lean. Uh, so, so we can see that some of these extreme weight loss practices that are essentially required, if, if you're doing a pretty severe weight cut for, for a weigh-in, or if you're trying to get really, really shredded, there's going to be some, some weight loss practices that are considered extreme. And really just to be on stage in a physique sport is an extreme, uh, you've gotten to an extreme endpoint. So even if you do it conservatively, it's extreme. Um, but, but we can see when we look at some of these weight loss practices, there are ways that we can uh, potentially make the post-competition period a little bit harder. Uh, if we go really fast with, with a severe weight cut, then that's going to uh, really insist that we go into a very large deficit. And then, of course, the leaner we get, the, the more pronounced some of these issues can be. But a lot of times we find ourselves at the end of this dieting, this dieting period and uh, resting metabolic rate might be suppressed a little bit uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, kind of our non-exercise energy expenditure, 
uh, in many cases can be quite suppressed. And we find that our total daily energy expenditure is a little lower than it ought to be for someone who is, you know, our size, who is just like weight stable. And so then we we couple in some of the psychological factors. The, the more extreme the the approach, the the more uh, food focused we tend to be. Uh, the, the more we really recognize how much we're missing out on from a dietary perspective, the more we fixate on hunger. And of course, we are directly exacerbating that hunger with w- with these extreme approaches as well. And so we we can find ourselves at the end of a diet where we've lost some portion of fat mass, some portion of lean mass, and our total energy expenditure is a little lower than than it ought to be. And this really predisposes us to some weight regain. Uh, You know, we're food fixated. uh, We're we're well, well below whatever set point or settling point we we generally would be at. Uh, And so if we don't go into that period with a plan, we, we might have some pretty rapid fat regain. And it is interesting to see uh, you know, some of that fat regain appears to be dictated by the fact that we've got this huge appetite. We've got this reduced energy expenditure. There's a pretty big mismatch between intake and expenditure. So, so we do tend to see that that th- those fat stores get restored pretty quickly, almost preferentially at first. But uh, a really fascinating thing, Delu has published some great work on this, is that the excess hunger after a diet seems to persist until we've regained all of the fat-free mass or all the lean mass that we lost initially. Uh, And that has some big implications because the fat can get restored pretty quickly, but lean mass restoration takes time in most cases. And so we might find that we fully restore our fat mass that was lost before we have fully restored our lean mass that was lost. And the appetite elevation will persist. And that's where we often find a spot where we're actually overshooting. We're, we're regaining more fat than we initially lost. And that helps us understand some of these observational studies where we find athletes who do weight cycling sports tend to have higher BMI later in life than athletes in other sports. You know, we, we find there's even some twin studies. A twin who has done more focused weight loss attempts often tends to weigh a little bit more than their twin who hasn't. And so uh, we can see how these things uh, contribute. So when it comes to, you know, what we found in the study, it, it essentially was, damn, a lot of fat gain, not a lot of lean mass gain right out of the gates. And, and so the, the, the main practical application there, or the implication, I guess, is you want to focus on having really sustainable weight loss practices, but also have a really solid plan for after the fact. So leading in, I think you'd probably want to prefer to take a slower approach as much as you can so that you can have better, higher quality training throughout the cut, maintain more strength, maintain more performance, maintain more lean mass. And that way you don't have this huge lean mass deficit that's driving hunger after the fact. I think that's one big thing. Uh, So taking your time, keeping the deficit small, and then having a plan for after the fact where you recognize hunger might be a little skewed, Energy expenditure might be a little lower than we think. So let's make sure we have a plan where we're actually matching our post-diet surplus to our actual potential for hypertrophy at that time. We need to kind of gradually let those things build up together. Yeah. If we followed the common advice to be like, it's bulking season, bro. I'm going to put on all this lean body mass. And it's like, yeah, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Actually, just your fat mass is going to probably overshoot where it was. You're not going to gain a bunch of lean body mass because that takes time anyway. It's not like it's going to rapidly appear because it never works like that. Like, yeah. I, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with somebody who's like, you know, I'm just gaining so much muscle so quickly. And it just, it's really bothering me, honestly, just how fast I'm packing well, on muscle mass. You know, that that's what kills me is sometimes we get we get caught in the weeds with this research and we start thinking about mechanisms and like, well, I don't know, you're so insulin sensitive. Are you shuttling nutrients to muscle? And, <laughs> right, right. and it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like we have the blueprint for crash dieting and weight regain and the result is not, damn, now I have to buy new t-shirts because my sleeves are too tight. You <laughs> yeah, know, right, like exactly, we yeah. know what yo-yo dieting does in non-lifters. And when we when we apply that same general concept to lifters where I'm going to go super extreme for a very short period of time and then try to super extremely rebound out of that with a huge energy surplus. We intuitively know that that's not the recipe for success, like you mentioned. Right. Yeah. And so in general, I like, I agree with all of this. I like getting people to the weight they need to be at, for, particularly for strength sports, uh, like a week or two, at least prior to the 
meet. So that way we're not dealing with anything come meet week and, you know, that extra stress, uh, in additional, in addition to like, oh, now I got to do a water cut, which I absolutely hate doing for folks. Cause it's like, all right, what is one variable unrelated to energy intake that could have a significant impact on performance? Like one dietary variable that, you know, unrelated to energy intake that could have a significant effect on your performance, like, okay, hydration status. And then people are like, yeah, I'm just going to go crazy three gallons of water a day. I'm going to put myself, you know, on the brink of like, you know, abnormal kidney function just for this meat. And it's like, and then also maybe dehydrate my muscles, which is probably not good for performance. And then, yeah. And then pretend that after a two hour weigh in, I'm going to be fine. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, the, the place where I really fell in love with all this stuff, training and nutrition was as a competitive wrestler. Oh yeah. And, sure. uh, you know, our, our, our wrestling team, there's so many guys who thought they were, you know, cheating the system. Oh, I'm going to do this aggressive cut. It's like, dude, you suck. <laughs> you show yeah, up for yeah, your yeah. first ma- match of the day and you've got nothing there. And, yeah. uh, I I've even talked to some lifters who want to do a, a water cut not even to make their weight class, but just to say, oh, if I take out, you know, six pounds of water, I can improve my Wilkes here. And it's like, mm. dude, you're, you're, you're in your weight class. Everything's good. Just show up and be strong. The sport's strong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The idea is to lift as much weight as possible, not as be as light, not to be as light as possible necessarily. Um, yeah. yeah. And in addition, after the cut, I typically try to schedule a sort of period of like weight stabilization. Um, for a couple of weeks, you see that in the literature with weight loss studies, that a lot of this stuff tends to normalize. Um, but I also mm-hmm. think the reason why, you know, this not necessarily observational data, but like anecdotal data from uh, people working with other athletes, you, you hear about reverse dieting all the time. And I just, right now my eyes are messed up, so I can't roll them hard enough, but like, that's what <laughs> I would be doing. Uh, and, but it's, it's a persistent sort of idea and thought and people talk about it. And I think the reason why is like, if you can take somebody who's done this extreme diet, they've lost a bunch of fat mass, and then you slowly are incrementally increasing their energy intake, and they're adherent to that, you're likely to see less of this rapid fat mass restoration, and which we just talked about why that happens. And so people say, yep, I had better results with reverse dieting, and I got to increase my energy intake, I didn't gain a bunch of fat rapidly. And they probably think that's the way that's the ticket. And so for, to me, that just seems like a weight stabilization kind of period, even though weight necessarily wasn't exactly stable. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is I don't know that I would tech really like shoot for this, uh, uh, reverse dieting approach. I would more just prefer like a weight stabilization, like plan for that period. If you want to increase your intake over that period, 200 calories, 500, cal- whatever, that's fine. But you don't need to like micromanage this for 24 weeks where you're adding 50 calories a week or something like that. That's not really what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I don't like the, um, the extreme fixation on the little variables with, with a, a common approach to the reverse diet. I, I think that's more harm than good, honestly, at that point, like you just got through this really challenging diet. Let's try to keep things simple. Let's try to keep the enjoyment factor high and not stress out over the little stuff. Um, and what's funny is if you do what you're suggesting a weight maintenance phase for some period of time, or just a nice slow, uh, weight gain phase, you know, try to build up some muscle from there. Uh, you know, cause I would imagine there, the, after the maintenance phase, then we're, you know, trying to put on some muscle in, in, in many cases, what you'll find is that if the individual is really ready for a reverse diet, uh, you know, if they really are in a pretty uh, energetically suppressed state, you're going to accomplish it by accident, you know, so it, because in that weight maintenance phase, you're going to find, wow, wh- when I bump you up, we're still maintaining and then I bump you up and we're still maintaining. So it, you don't even have to intentionally do it. If a person's going to be making those adaptations to their energy expenditure where they're just catching up to the overfeeding, then as you transition from maintenance to the weight gain phase, you're going to just do the damn thing anyway, because they are going to adapt to that. And that's actually, is I've got a client right now who uh, I am very very much trying to get her to gain some weight and it's not working, which is, uh, I'm like, what the hell's happening? But, but we, we did a fat loss phase that was very successful. And, you know, I actually kind of came in, she had like two weeks left of a cut and started working with me. So we finished off the cut. It worked well. And then we started, okay, let's transition. We're going to maintain for a few weeks and then start gaining weight. 
well, we're not gaining any damn weight, but calorie intake has gone way up. So if we call that a reverse diet, fine. But but if the person's going to make those adaptations, they're going to make them, whether you're doing that intentionally or not. And you know, as long as you're not doing anything extreme, like saying, cool, the day the diet ends, let's go to 4,500 calories a day since you weigh 130. <laughs> you know, like as long as you're not doing that, then you're going to end up doing a reverse diet if you're making sensible adjustments in the first place. Yep. Yeah, some people will make those adjustments, whether it's an increase in NEAT, whether it's an increase in spontaneous physical activity, or even diet-induced thermogenesis, fractional energy absorption. There's a bunch of different ways the body can like adapt to different amount of energy intake. And some folks who are like obese resistant versus obese susceptible, yeah, it's gonna there's gonna be an inter-individual difference there. But uh, yeah, you don't have to try that hard. You're just it's gonna happen whether or not you want yeah. it to. So. And you know, the, the funny thing is, uh, a lot of people want to force it. They say, I want to do a reverse diet so that I can supercharge my metabolism and be, you know, metabolically completely different than I used to be. Right. And, no. and so sometimes they want to force it. They want to try this intervention and it simply doesn't work. And that's viewed as a negative thing. But realistically, that's actually like kind of a positive thing. It's like, oh, we're trying to solve a problem that was never there. What do you know? And and so it's it's interesting that people view that as a negative thing. And it's like, no, we're, we're already where we want to be physiologically. Like the calories are maybe lower than you want, but, but we don't have a problem to fix here. Yeah. Just imagine if you had to consciously micromanage your metabolism, like all of the processes, like you could, you could influence it so much that like, you know, different ways where like, it's almost, it'd be incompatible with life because you would like, some days oh. you'd be a little under, some days you'd be over and then you would just cease to exist. I, I've, I spent way too much time thinking about that. So my, my anatomy and physiology courses were like through the medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I got a little exposure to, to your education. Uh, and I just remember taking those, those medically oriented anatomy and physiology courses and thinking like, oh my God, if my dumb ass had to manage these processes, <laughs> I would have been dead so long ago. Like you're, you're talking about all the processes in the body that have to be carefully matched and integrated and balanced. Like, yeah, thank God it's out of our hands because we, we would have no chance. Yes. Yes. Can't at least at least uh, on this end of the podcast, for sure. I would have been gone a long time ago. Uh, la- last question. This is kind of like a hot take and then we'll get uh, all of your contact details. I don't know. Have you read uh, Ponzer, Herman Ponzer's new book, Burn? Have you read that yet? I have not. Okay. Well, his, I won't, I'm not a spoiler guy, but would recommend if you're listening to this or, and, and Eric, you should, it's a good read. Um, he's the, his main idea is that there's this constrained energy expenditure model. So effectively, like we're only capable of expending X amount of energy per day. We try to go above that. We'll just adapt and otherwise bring it back down. Uh, to that level. The uh, implication here with respect to nutrition is that, you know, people are saying, ah, I got to eat 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 calories a day. And he's like, that's not actually possible, uh, mainly because your gut cannot t- deal with that amount of food. His thought is that your gut's only capable of dealing with about two and a half X your BMR. So this 130 pound person trying to eat 5,000 calories a day, that's impossibility uh what's the craziest well one first question hot take what's your take on that and then two what's the craziest sort of calorie intake that you can recall for somebody either high or low oh that that's awesome um so my hot take is that i i have to assume that there are adaptive mechanisms in place you know that that generally correspond to this constrained energy expenditure hypothesis so Then the question is, when you start getting into lay press books, how overconfident are the exact figures and things like that? But but I know he's he's a a very accomplished researcher. So it's not like he's, you know, just some person saying, I've I've got a hot take, I'll write a book. Uh, He's done a lot of work in that area. I I, I have to assume, uh, you know, that I mean, if you're really out there, you know, doing like really high volume endurance work, like yeah, you're you're probably going to be a little bit sluggish around the house, probably going to have some constraints on other aspects of energy expenditure. To me, that sounds not just plausible, but intuitive. Uh, so then the question is, you know, where do we set those hard limits of how much you can expend in a day and how much you can tolerate uh, nutritionally in a day? I don't have any hot takes regarding those exact thresholds, but the general principle to me sounds 
quite intuitive, and, and I'm inclined to think that that's likely the case. Um, now, when it comes to calorie intakes, uh, were you looking for the highest or the lowest? Yeah, either way, whichever that you think is the most shocking, because that's mm. you know it's the internet and people people want the shock value. Here. Yeah. So honestly, I I would just go with my own because I I know that the sure. you, you, you don't have to worry about like oh my client says they eat like 400 calories a day <laughs> right. i'm not sure if i'm you know it's i don't think that's right um right. but like i know for me like just to give an example uh when i went to i, I wrestled around 140 145 as a senior in high school mm-hmm. went to college got up really close to 200 within like a year or two ended up cutting down into the 130s again after being up by 200 like I've been all over the place and my my metabolic rate's pretty adaptive relative to people around me, it, it seems. So like w- when I cut for bodybuilding shows, like I'll get down to 1400 calories a day. And like when mm-hmm. you're eating, you know, 180, 200 grams of protein, it's like protein and like maybe you can get some spinach in there and like that's it. So yeah, uh, right, that's right. as low as I've gotten and it sucks, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, but on the high side, when I was bulking up, you know, getting up to 200, like for me, that required so much food. It was like I would make spaghetti and like eggs and then like grilled cheese to dip into the egg yolks as I was eating my spaghetti. Like I would eat a whole pizza every day as just kind of like a warm up meal. It was crazy. Like I, I, I didn't bother tracking calories because it was literally if you can eat and it doesn't make you feel sick to think about, then you better be eating was, was pretty much my meal plan. And I mean, it, it had to be, I, I would have to estimate considerably up into the 4,500, 5,000 calorie a day range, I, I would think. And it was horrible. It was disgusting. I felt sick like always. So like, yeah, Ponser talking about there's only so much you can tolerate. Absolutely. I'm on board with that because I felt terrible. And uh, the the funniest part was I was really young. I was like 18, 19. And I didn't understand that strength and hypertrophy are not necessarily the same thing. They're related, but they're they're not a perfect one-to-one. So like I'm I'm frankly getting fat as hell uh, is how that was working. But I kept getting stronger simultaneously. And the two were unrelated, but they were happening at a similar trajectory. So as far as I could tell, I was just putting on, you know, several pounds of muscle a week. And it wasn't until my, I was in college, I had roommates and stuff. My roommate just kind of sat me down. It's like, Hey dude, I care about you. Just wanted to let you know you're fat as hell. Uh, I know you don't <laughs> think it, but you are. And, uh, and then I looked in the mirror and I was like, Oh, I think you're right. <laughs> so so I, I learned a valuable lesson there. Yeah. Everybody's got to learn that lesson one time. But uh, but it was, you know, it was fun up up until the very end when I started just feeling terrible all the time. Right. No, I had a very similar experience. I mean, when I was cutting, I used to cut to the 181 class and I was, I mean, I think my lowest I was at like 1800 or 1900 calories a day. And if you read the internet, you're like, how is that even possible? You're a young, you know, man with a bunch of muscle and whatever that's impossible. You're eating way too little. I'm like, well, I was only losing like a half a pound a week. So mm-hmm. answer, I was not like way under. And then I think when I was trying to gain weight, I could not gain weight unless I went like over 3,700 and got closer to 4,000. But as soon as I like hit that 4,000 mark, like weight was just coming on pretty rapidly, uh, maybe a little, even too much. And so, but interestingly, like both of these reports, no, Neither of us are talking about eating 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 calories a day. It's not possible is the thing. Like you could try to eat it, but you won't. Like you just, again, there's all these adaptive mechanisms and like fail safes that are redundant that would prevent you from doing so. Even like when Michael Phelps was like, I eat 10,000 calories a day. So follow up, like they did a follow up kind of assessment. And he was like, ah, it's probably more like 6,500 to 7,000. And they followed him around for a day and like literally tracked everything he ate. And it was closer to 6,000 calories a day. And even during his, but during his highest volume training periods, he was still losing weight because his energy expenditure was, it outstripped his energy intake. He literally could not eat enough to maintain weight, which is what you see in these endurance sports, because there's a limit to how much you can actually eat. Anyway, that's a plug for Ponzer's book. I don't get any royalties off this, but it's just an interesting, it's sort of like, that chapter is just a myth buster for like all this bro science. You know, w- once COVID's over, I want to hit him up and because uh, he he's actually like down the road from from Greg and I. Oh, uh, really? I'm, I'm pretty sure he he teaches it. He I think he's a professor at Duke, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yep. 
Um, so yeah, that's right down the road. So we need to sit down with him and, uh, and get him on the microphone. But yeah, even I, I should say, you know, when I was loosely estimating up around 4,500, maybe 5,000, I would also anticipate that I've probably overestimated just because it felt so shitty and it felt like so much food. Yeah, yeah. And I would, I would almost guarantee that if I did have those days where I truly did get above 4,500, I bet the next day I probably under ate pretty substantially because you see that a lot. You'll see people who are trying amount. to bulk. Yeah, yeah. And, and they'll say, oh, I, I had this great day. I got up to 4,300 and the next day they eat 2,800 because they can't even think about food. So I would say that that represents right. like my highest high day estimate. Turns out your metabolism and brain are smarter <laughs> than your conscious <laughs> uh, behaviors. Yeah. Um, well, if you get Ponzer on the mic, I just want to be, you can like silence my mic. I just want to be on there to fanboy because I just, um, I yeah, f- good, good guy to follow on Twitter. Excellent book. Uh, super interesting. And uh, Eric, dude, this was great. We could go on for a while, but I think this is a really, really good podcast. Um, where can people find you, interact with you, all that good stuff? Well, first of all, I really appreciate the invitation. This was fantastic. Um, people can find me, of course, at strongerbyscience.com, um, the mass research review, which you can find through strongerbyscience.com. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Trexler Fitness. Perfect. Cool. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap on this week's podcast with Eric Trexler. Big shout out to him for coming on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I've linked all of his uh, contact info in the description below, in addition to some cool papers that he's published in the literature. And uh, hey, before you go, wherever you're getting this podcast from, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, and we really appreciate that. And we'll see you next week and every week here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.